We've been working our way through uh, the book of Romans, uh, which is a, a letter in the New Testament that Paul, one of Jesus' authorized spokespersons, uh, has written to the church in Rome. Uh, this isn't a church that Paul started, but it's a church that he desires to go and visit, that they might assist and help him to take the good news of the gospel, that Jesus alone is the Savior of sinners, take that good news message to the farthest reaches of the known world at that time. Uh, remember, uh, due to our rebellion, Paul has told us, we have been completely separated from our God. We failed to live up to the righteous requirements of God's character and His law. And the only way that we can be made right is through Jesus being our new representative that our sins are forgiven in Him and His righteous, perfect living is credited to our account and we are made right with our God. Uh, not just that, we saw last week that the good news continues to get even better as not only are we declared right in God's uh, eyes, uh, and, but that He adopts us and brings us into His family as His treasured sons and daughters, as those who are heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus. How good is this news? But Paul ended last week at the end of chapter 8 and he told us that prior to this inheritance coming, we will experience suffering. Suffering. I thought, Paul, though, that you said there's no condemnation. I thought you said that Jesus had defeated and conquered death. How are we to view this suffering that we face as we live out our lives as God's sons, His daughters, His children, His heirs? What perspective should we have on the suffering that we face and how do we live out a life that is uh, in the context of great suffering in the present time. Paul helps to continue to reorient our minds and our thoughts and our understandings of how far-reaching the implications of the gospel are. So, if you would, look with me in Romans chapter 8. We are looking at verses 18 through 25 this morning. So please follow along with me there in your copy of God's Word. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. 
Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have revealed yourself sufficiently and clearly to us in your word. We acknowledge not just the the difficulty for us to understand your word, but for the difficulty of us to, to live out our lives in light of the truth that we see and find there. Therefore, we pray and ask this morning that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You, our Lord, our rock, our our Redeemer, that we would see rightly and know who Jesus is, who we are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as we look in this passage and are considering this idea of suffering and how we are to understand it in the context of the Christian life, I want to look at it from a few ways. First, we want to look at the sufferings of our present time that Paul introduces us to. Then we want to look at the glory that's to be revealed. And then we want to understand what does it look like to hope in that glory that we cannot yet see. So first, let's look at the the sufferings of the present time. Notice Paul acknowledges we do have this suffering. Look in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, he says. Remember, as I introduced before, we saw at the end of last week that this in verse 17, that although we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, we must suffer prior to seeing and experiencing the reception of this full inheritance. Paul is telling us that we will and we do suffer. He's not minimizing this suffering. It's great. Notice the language that he uses to describe our response to the present suffering that we experience. Look in verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we await this adoption, this redemption, this deliverance. That language of groaning that Paul is using is used elsewhere in the Scriptures to describe those who are calling out and groaning under deep oppression, under great pain and frustration and longing, uh, of suffering and heartache, it it's, uh, stirs them as they lift up their prayers to God, and it is occasioned by deep pain. Now, one way we understand these sufferings, as we even prayed this morning, is recognizing the aspect of persecution for following and submitting to the, the name of Jesus. We saw that Jesus experienced great persecution through His life here in this world as He was rejected, as He suffered, and He told us in light of that, we too should expect to be rejected and to suffer at the hands of the world around us. But there's there's a bigger picture for us to understand of the suffering that Jesus encountered. The suffering that Jesus encountered wasn't just that people would deny His name before they acknowledged it in His return. But think about What it meant 
for our holy God, the second person of the Trinity, to take on flesh and enter into our world. A world that is marked with suffering. He took on flesh, and in that flesh, in that body, experienced the difficulty and the pain and the suffering and the frustration that we encounter as we live life out in this world right now. Many of you know and recognize in significant ways the ways that we as humanity experience suffering and pain in our bodies. The older you get, you move with less freedom. The older you get, your mind doesn't quite work the way that it used to. You know members of your family who even if they lived into their 90s, Lindsay had grandmothers that lived into their hundreds, yet they still died. Their bodies broke down. They suffered death. And we, how do we respond to their death? Grief, pain, loss, suffering as well. It's not just physically for older people, but all of you. You know, little ones, little babies. Some of you have had children suffering over this past week, unable to breathe, itchy spots on their skin, fevers. What about allergies to plants, to animals? You know and recognize the difficulty and pain that comes from suffering, not just physically, but mentally. Think about mental illness that people suffer and experience. Pain, emotional turmoil with inside ourselves. Loneliness and separation from other people, from family members, from friends. And the pain continues to multiply and get greater and greater and greater. Some of you even thinking, all I need right now is some rest and some sleep to recover. Maybe I can overcome this illness or this sickness. But you go and you seek to lie down in your bed and you know what eludes you? Sleep. When you nod off, nightmares, memories, things flood into your mind. You wake up panting, sweating, breathing. Even there, you encounter suffering and brokenness. You cannot find relief from what is assaulting your body and your experience. And we cry out in the midst of pain, death, suffering, persecution. It is all around us. But notice what Paul says. This suffering isn't just something that we as humans experience. Do you notice also in this passage, as Paul is talking about the present sufferings that are going on, it extends past even humanity. Look, look at what he says in verse 20. Well, first in 19, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it 
that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning. It's not just humanity, but the entire created order is groaning under this pain and suffering. But notice what Paul says. That the creation was subjected to this futility, to this bondage, to this corruption. Not willingly. It wasn't creation's fault. Creation didn't do anything. Why then is creation suffering alongside us? Remember what Paul told us a few chapters ago of the way that God relates to his world is through covenant representatives and humanity. Humanity was placed in a unique position over all of God's creation. Humanity alone is made and created in the image of God. This isn't just talking about you, you can look at an animal and interact with an animal and know we far surpass them in our capacity and our capability to do things in the world. Sure, you might have a dog that can uh, sit or do tricks or go fetch 20 different things that you've taught it how to do, but can a dog write a book? Can a monkey create a skyscraper or a tower? What animal has written a symphony or a great work of art? Sure, you can put a paintbrush and an elephant's, what are those, trunks? But nothing compared to what Da Vinci has painted? But it's not just our mental capability, but humanity has been placed in this world to rule and reflect God's rule in this world, to be his vice kings, his vice regents, to care for his world and to reflect his love, his tenderness, his compassion, his shepherding care of his world. Remember, Adam and Eve were tasked. You I've, been, I've given you dominion over all things. You're to subdue it. You're to take that dominion. You're to be fruitful. You're to be multiply. You're, God set humanity in the Garden of Eden, and then they were to expand that small, geographically limited space where God dwelled with humanity in perfection and in flourishing and expand that kingdom and that rule and that reign throughout the entire earth. That everything, every square inch of creation would flourish and blossom and thrive under the care of God's vice rulers. But Adam threw that off. And not only did he plunge every single one of us into suffering, but because creation also was under his rule and under the rule of humanity, Creation suffers because of what we have done as humans. It's not hard for us to, to look around and see that, is it? Just this past week, I was reading about a disease that is affecting deer in eastern 
North Carolina and South Carolina that's causing them to waste away. You have to be careful not to transport these deer so that that disease isn't spread. You think about uh, animals also experience birth defects and disease debilitating them. We know of whole species of animals that fail to exist anymore. Some of that has come about because of humanity failing to shepherd and steward God's provision. We hunted animals out of existence to take and take and take and take. Think about other disasters that have happened due to humanity's failure to think of ourselves as stewards of creation and how it's affected the world. Rivers polluted. Think about the disaster of Chernobyl and all of how that's affected that entire region of the soil deep, deep down is suffering due to what we've done. How the creation and the face of the earth has been marred due to the wars that humanity has done and created. We, we fail to do what God has called us to do. We, we see it in, in the curse that God gives Adam and Eve back in Genesis. Remember, uh, the, the blessing that God gave Adam and Eve, that they were to be fruitful, they were to multiply, they were to take dominion in the world. But remember the curse and how it was related? The curse that God punished Adam and Eve with and all of humanity affected all of those aspects. Part of it being the way that we interacted with each other, the way we interacted with God, but also our interaction with creation. It's going to be harder to see the creation be fruitful that we're going to see that now, instead of as we plant and seek to grow things, we're going to encounter thorns and thistles. We too continue to experience this. Whose garden produced with no problem this past year? I'll tell you what, mine stunk. Disease took over almost every plant I had in my garden. Paul here is telling us that Creation, there's something about the way even it all functions that has been altered, that's been changed, that is disordered because of humanity's sin. And Paul says it's bad. We don't realize the full effects and impact of our sin. Think about the reason why this would, would, would work and why creation would be groaning out. Think, think about either... If you're, you've been in a workplace, you've been in a classroom, you've been in a sports team, I you to think about the worst boss you've ever had. I you to think about the worst teacher, meanest, most cruel teacher you've ever had, or a, the hor- most horrible coach you've ever had. What was the experience of those on that team, under that coach, in that workplace, in that classroom. Suffering is great. It affects the way you work. It affects the way you labor. It affects not just you at home, at work, but it affects you when you go home. 
In some workplaces you can walk in, some classrooms you can work, walk in, and you can tell this is just a horrible place because it changes just the way everything looks in the building, in the class, on the team, the way the, the players carry themselves under an oppressive and cruel coach. But something changes if the coach is different if there's a different teacher, if there's a different boss, and all of a sudden everything can transform and change. What Paul is saying is in light of our sin and in light of the fact that God's image bearers are in rebellion against Him, we do not rule well anymore. We do not carry out our function right. And the whole creation suffers its fruitfulness is affected and it groans. It's laboring under how poor of a job we do with what we have been tasked to do. Paul isn't minimizing any of this. He is one who suffered greatly if you read through the rest of the Scriptures. And he's highlighting for us that all of creation groans under oppression, under depravity, under death and decay and suffering. But notice what he says. As bad as it is in our experience now, Paul wants us to put our focus and our attention on something else. Do you notice? Notice what he says in verse 18. In light of these present sufferings, I consider that the, present, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. Notice, not just is there no comparison. Paul's saying it's not even worth comparing. It so far extends and transcends as bad as you may think your suffering is, and as messed up as we have distorted and corrupted this world and relationships and all of God's stuff, Paul says it's not com worth comparing to what's coming. Direct your attention to what's coming. What is coming? What is this glory that's to be revealed? Well, notice what Paul says. First, he draws our attention to our glory. We must consider and contemplate the glory that awaits us. Look in verse 18. That's where he starts with it. It's not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, as we think about glory, remember part of the, the way that this is, is talking about is the experiencing of the full coming and realization of the restored and established kingdom of God. And what Paul says is that's going to be something that is revealed to us. We will see it. It'll be evident to us in our, in our, in our eyes, in our perception, in our experience. But notice that it's not just something that we'll look at. But part of the glory that is to be revealed involves us, us being glorified. Remember, Paul talked about that at the, the end of verse 17, remember? 
If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. We are awaiting our own being glorified. And look at how that glory is tied up into something to having to do with humanity. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of this glory. What is it? The revealing of the sons of God. Remember, this is a royal term. That once again, what will be apparent and revealed, not just to us, but to creation, that we rule and reign and live in this world as we were created and as we are intended to be sons that fully and totally reflect the priorities, the character, the look, the gait, the cadence of our Father. As he goes on, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Notice it's involved with our glory and us experiencing it. But notice where part of where Paul points us to is this transformation for us. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, Remember, Paul's already told us we've been adopted into his family through the finished work of Jesus, applied to us through the work of the Spirit. We have been adopted, but us fully experiencing what it completely looks like to be the adopted sons of God is yet to be seen, but it's coming, Paul says. And part of what it will look like is the redemption of our bodies. Remember the suffering that we were reflecting on before? how great and deep you all feel and experience it and how it's growing, Paul says it's not even worth comparing to what will be true when God finishes His work in you and you are transformed and your bodies are renewed and redeemed. As Paul reflects on this later in 1 Corinthians as he talks about our bodies which are to come and how do we know what they're going to be like? He says, look to the, the resurrection of Jesus. You see, what, what Jesus secured for us and His perfect life, His death and His resurrection is a foretaste for us of what we will experience. Our bodies will be transformed, Paul says. It's not just that, that there uh, won't be suffering and pain and frustration, but our bodies will be better better than they were at the creation with Adam and Eve. You see, what Jesus is doing and what He is securing for us is He is accomplishing for humanity what Adam and Eve failed to do. You see, if, if Adam would have lived in obedience and trust with God, we would have been confirmed forever in that relationship with Him. And things would have continued to go better and improve and grow and flourish. But Adam threw that off. And where do we enter? We entered into curse. But Jesus, the perfect man, comes. And where we are headed is to live lives and live in a world that is completely perfected and even better than what was initially created. And it'll start off with our bodies. 
And think about how Paul's been describing and talking about our bodies before this. In the previous chapters, you remember what he talked about? How we use our bodies? Our bodies are instruments of sin. Our bodies are tools for our rebellion. But if our body is completely transformed and redeemed and renewed, and that presence of sin that we struggle with is done away with, and the decay of our bodies stops, and the pain and the suffering and the grief is taken away, how glorious would life be lived in this world? Not just for us, but imagine what it will mean for everything that we do. Not just I can get up out of bed without hearing a pop from some part of my body that I didn't know existed. Not just talking about no more headaches. We're talking about completely being freed up to be the human that you were created to be. Think about what that would do for your relationship with yourself. How you would view and understand yourself. You would see yourself rightly in light of who you are in Jesus. Your relationship with God would be completely transformed. Your relationship with each other. The the dysfunction that entered into marriages in light of the fall. Paul is saying those relational conflicts and selfishness and how pride dominates and destroys will be completely done away with. Everything will be transformed. But notice, this redemption that Paul has been talking about, sometimes when we, we think about salvation and we talk about justification, a lot of times we just think about us as humans being saved. Our souls being redeemed, us going to heaven. But you see what Paul's talking about here is bigger than that. Is humanity involved in it? Yes, we are the key component of this redemption. Because as we are redeemed and transformed, it has an overflowing effect. Because you notice, do you see where it it extended? It's not just humanity, but the effect is on the rest of creation. Look in verse 19. Creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The language that Paul uses there is as as if creation is standing on its tiptoes eagerly looking and waiting and longing for this to come. Because when God's vice kings are transformed and they're doing what they're supposed to do, we will be transformed. All of creation will be transformed. I don't know if any of you have read the book Matilda by Roald Dahl or seen the movie or the, uh, the, the, the play. But in it, Matilda, this girl, is in the most horrible family you can imagine. And her parents are physically abusive, or verbally abusive to her and neglect her completely and totally. She gets into a school that is dominated by a cruel headmistress, the Trunchbull. You walk around that school, you picture yourself in there, and everybody is suffering under the oppression of the cruel tactics 
and the, the leadership and the oppression of this master of the school. But by the end of the book, someone else gets in charge of Matilda and someone else becomes in charge of the school and it's Miss Honey. And when Miss Honey is in charge, everything transforms. Matilda comes alive. The school looks different. The experience of everybody in there is transformed. The kids are alive and full of joy and excitement. Everything changes and transforms when a good and kind and proper ruler and master and leader takes over. And that's what God is saying to us here. When humanity is transformed through the work of Jesus, creation will be set free. Creation will be set free to be who God intended it and what God intended it and made it to be. Sometimes we have this idea that what redemption looks like is the souls of humans will be saved, we'll go to live in heaven, and guess what's going to happen to this world? God's going to destroy it. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Why does it really matter what happens here on this world? It's just going to burn up anyway. Does that sound like what Paul is saying here? What creation would long for and hope with eager expectation? Man, I can't wait till Jesus redeems these humans because then at that point, we're all just going to implode. No. The redemption that Paul is talking about here is cosmic in scale. Our sin had cosmic implications. All of the creation in some way was transformed due to our rebellion. How much more so will that redemption be through what Jesus is doing? This is what Paul is saying here. If it doesn't compare, think about what creation will be like when Jesus returns and we are all ruling as we intended. Blue will be bluer than the blue we've ever seen. The sun will be brighter and sunnier. Water will taste crisper and clearer. Plants would seem to to grow in any sort of soil as it'll be flourishing. There'll be more varieties of fruit than we could imagine. Maybe there's more colors than we've ever thought of before. The birds' songs will sound songier. Fruit will taste better. The scents and the smells all around. What will it look like for bacteria to be transformed in all of its aspects? Things that you think now have no function in this world. God renews and restores it to where it's better than you can comprehend. Remember what God has said. You don't have a good enough imagination to think about what will happen in this world when I am done with my work of redemption. And guess what? It has nothing to do with imploding this world because I created humanity in bodies. And I placed humanity on this planet to live and thrive and carry out my calling. And my redemptive work through Jesus will transform all of it. And you will live here forever. And that is the hope we have. And notice what Paul says. If these sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that comes, then what we need to do now is live in light of the end of the story. You notice where he goes with hope? 
Remember, hope in Scripture isn't, let me cross my fingers and hope that something might possibly come about. No, it's confident assurance. And notice what he says. Where did this uh, hope come from? Look back up in verse 20. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Who subjected creation? God did in punishing humanity. But notice what his goal was at the very beginning. He subjected it in hope. In hope of what? That creation would be set free when humanity is delivered. Do you remember reading back in Genesis 3? God encounters humanity in his, in his sin. First words in the, the curse and the punishment that God speaks is he condemns Satan. But in his condemnation of Satan, he speaks hope of the one who will come and defeat Satan and redeem and renew and restore all things. And that comes before the curse on humanity and the rest of creation. Hope leads the confident assurance that all things will be renewed and transformed. How? Through our work? Let me just go plant a bunch of flowers and bring about the kingdom of God? No. It's through God becoming a creature and dying in our place. He continues to go on and pointing us to this hope. For it is in this hope that we were saved. When you were saved and redeemed, it wasn't just for your soul to escape this world. It was for the redemption of your bodies and the restoration and renewal of the entire cosmos. But we don't see it now. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, Paul says. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And that's the calling, waiting for it with patience. This isn't just sitting around doing nothing. I'm so bored. I wish God would hurry up and get on with what he's going to do. No, there's an activeness of this. It's doing and living in light of the hope that is coming. Remember the language that he continues to use? You notice how many times it came up? The pains of childbirth? The suffering that we are experiencing is, is signs pointing to something that's coming. The renewal and restoration of all things. I've never had a baby. I am not going to comment on how painful or not it is. But I've witnessed it and I will tell you I don't want to go through that pain. But I do know after the pain and the baby is in your arms, the smile, the joy, the love. Paul is saying, look and hope and live in light of the joy and the love that is coming. Well, how do I know? How do I know that it's going to come? Remember? This is our last thing to see. Look in verse 22. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan eagerly as we wait eagerly. The first fruits. This is Paul's language of using and talking about a guarantee. The Holy Spirit has come. If God has given us His Spirit, why would we ever doubt that He's not going to follow through with everything else? He's begun the transformation in your heart and in mine. And He will, for sure, begin to redeem and restore all things. I don't know if you remember watching the old Wizard of Oz. Remember how that movie started? Black and white. 
Everything's black and white and dreary. And then Dorothy gets to Oz, and all of a sudden, boom, everything's in color. One way to think of it now is as you look around at believers, we are already beginning to live in color. Signs that God is at work, that he's on the move. Should we not live now in light of that fact? Let's begin to live every aspect of our lives in color. Inviting the rest of humanity to join us and to enter into this kingdom and find the freedom that is found in living under the lordship and the kingship of Jesus and living out our lives in this world for his glory and his honor. This isn't just about going to heaven. Heaven's just a stopping point for the big thing that God is doing, the renewing and restoring of everything when heaven, the dwelling place of God, comes to earth and we are with him forever. We can be assured of this hope. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you that as we continue through Romans, it just keeps getting better and better and better and better. We pray that you would help us now as your people to live now presently, patiently, in light of this hope, trusting that Jesus will do and accomplish all that you have given him to do. The Holy Spirit is evidence of that, that you keep your promises and that the inheritance and the renewal and the restoration of all things is coming. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.